Galaxy Lights, Coachella, Lightning Bolt Necklaces. Did you catch all the Scandaval clues? Last March, one cheating scandal launched a reality TV investigation that generated hundreds of conspiracy theories, thousands of podcast episodes, and millions of dollars in revenue. I'm Jody Walker, host of An American Scandal. Ahead of the Vanderpump Rules premiere, relive the pop culture phenomenon that rocked a reality nation. Starting January 23rd on Ringer Dish. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to the Press Box. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Brian Waters. Coming up on today's pod, can Joe Biden find his voice and speak his truth on late night TV? We've got Pitchfork's greatest hits. We say farewell to Peter King and check in on week three of Jon Stewart. Plus, we revisit the great campaign documentary, The War Room. All this with today's guest host, Sean Fennessy. He is the Ringer's head of content. He hosts the Big Picture and Rewatchables podcast. I like to call him the king of all physical media. <laughs> Sean, welcome to Just My Opinion. I mean, the press box. <laughs> I'm so honored. I promise to uh, keep the takes as hot as we typically keep them on JMO. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yes, yes, that's what I want. <laughs> all right, lots to talk about, but let us begin with a little moment from the campaign. A media moment, if you will, on Monday. Joe Biden went on late night with Seth Meyers. What did that sound like? Well, here's Joey. <laughs> Welcome back, Mr. President. It's good to be back. Why haven't you invited me earlier? Well, you know, you were a busy guy. Did you think when you were here uh, in 2014 this show would make it 10 years? No. Yeah. <laughs> How did you think Biden did on late night um if we're using an out of 10 scale i'm gonna go with a five and a half okay which is to say the man did not fall down the man did not trip over his words too many times he seemed to stick to the script that was clearly delineated for him but you'd be hard pressed to walk away from that segment and not think to yourself boy he's moving at a slow pace the way he speaks the way he stood and walked towards the stage the way he constantly did the thing that I recall my grandmother doing as a young boy, which is she would reach for my hand. And he did this on more than one occasion with Amy Poehler. Whenever he had a moment where he was either going to make a joke or needed to feel a sense of connection, he turned and reached for her hand. Now, obviously, Joe Biden has an interesting history with uh, making physical connection. And also, he is he's doing things that old people do. So I couldn't get that out of my mind as I watched him do what is now becoming an increasingly rare media appearance. What'd you think? Did you like how both Amy Poehler and Seth Meyers maybe subconsciously adopted the mannerisms you adopt when you're with grandpa on the couch? 
Yes, that like fear that they're going to say something that they shouldn't say. Uh-huh. That concern that everything is going to go smoothly in this interaction. <laughs> that softness that you have to have. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the quietude that comes with every conversation with a grandparent. It was a different kind of late night talk show conversation, which is weird when you're talking to arguably the most powerful person in the universe right now. Totally. And the way you pull memories out of them. Remember that time we were on Parks and Rec together? <laughs> Remember that? It was, it, was, it was strange. It was, wasn't it strange? It was really strange. And I think it is a preview of Biden's 2024 media strategy. This is it. Uh, very controlled appearances. Very contrived appearances. Here we got the contrivances of politics combining with the contrivances of late night TV in a very interesting mix. And also, I think Seth Meyers is exactly the kind of person Joe Biden wants to interview. It's not a journalist. But it's a journalist-like object. And also codes as a friendly, successful liberal Democrat in an uncomplicated way. You know, (laughs) Seth Meyers, most people just think he seems like a pretty good guy. And I think that Joe Biden would like it if everyone said he just seems like a pretty good guy. That's kind of Biden's brand in some ways. So they were really a good match. And a person that will ask him about the war in Gaza, but in such an open-ended way, hey, Things are awful. What's going on with the war in Gaza? And then Biden answers it, and then we move on. Yeah, one of your favorite isms is the talk about. And there was a feeling of talk about to that interview. Not a lot of pressing directives, not a lot of hard lines in the sand through each question. It was just, a lot of people are thinking about this, Mr. President. What is it that you think about this? Totally. And then open field to say whatever he felt. I thought, uh, you know, I was pretty nervous, honestly, watching the first 10 minutes of this interview, concerned that he wasn't going to be able to make it through at times. And then as soon as he flipped to rehearsed policy position, I thought he actually did all right. And certainly well enough for a, you know, a late night TV appearance. This was not a controversial appearance by any means. But we're now in this critical moment of his presidency where any misstep will become 10x instantaneously. So in that respect, like it was fine. It was it was most it was legible, it was clear, it was kind of boring in the good way for them, but you can't imagine that he's going to be willing to go toe to toe with anybody who's going to push him any harder in the next 6 months, right? I wouldn't think so. I mean, he didn't want any of Margaret Brennan or Nora O'Donnell or Tony DeCopel or whoever CBS would have put up there before the Super Bowl. Right. Which is traditionally not a super hard-hitting interview. I mean, certainly within the bounds of a normal political interview. So I think they will seek this stuff out. He's been on Conan. That was in December. He's been on the Smartless podcast. He's been on Jay Shetty's podcast. If you're a podcaster and you kind of code as Seth Meyers does, you should probably answer your phone if it's a 202 number. No question. In the next few months, because Joe Biden's White House may be calling you. Well, I think one thing that's important to note about all of those appearances, too, is that they are all pre-taped and all manageable ex post facto, which is that in case anything goes wrong, In case there is a radical mistake, in case someone trips and falls, those things can be edited out. And the live appearance, the live experience of a president is kind of the essence of a president is, you know, I'm speaking directly to the nation. He's not putting himself in those situations for obvious reasons because they're concerned about a misstep. Whether or not that posture is the right posture headed into the the most boringly distressing election of our (laughs) lifetimes. I'm not sure if that's going to work out well. I'm I'm curious if you think that this like can hold if he just keeps doing podcasts and late night talk shows, if that's going to work. It's a great question. I think they're not trying to win the age question at this point. 
They're, they are not sending him out there and saying, this is going to be Bill Clinton playing the sax on Arsenio. Right. This is not what we're going for right now. We just need to put him out there so that a bunch of nervous Democrats and nervous never Trump Republicans say, OK, good enough. Right. I'm, I'm worried about Biden's age, but I watched that and good enough. I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. I think that's what they have to do. And I don't know the way out of that other than to just continue to send him out. And by the way, I'm not just advocating for podcasts and comedy shows. I would say he should also do interviews. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't know the way out of this at this point. There's not no one's just going to forget and say, oh, well, you know, 75 percent of Americans are worried that he may be too old to be president. Six months from now, we're just not going to remember that anymore. No, you are. I don't know. And I do think sometimes the opposition and maybe even the media talking about this over and over again does create this enormously low bar for Joe Biden to step over. Yeah. So if you watch that, that was not an impressive, you know, that was not going to make us remember Robin Williams on The Tonight Show <laughs> by any means. But maybe that is enough just because the expectations are so low. Yeah, I think it was ultimately innocuous. And if they're trying to have innocuous experiences for the next nine months, so be it. I... I think it's a fascinating contrast to the way that Trump, when he was president, would pursue direct confrontational interviews with the press. I mean, the Jonathan Swan moment is, is legendary in that respect. But in some ways, you know, Jonathan Swan certainly got a Q rating boost out of that experience. But did Donald Trump really take a hit by just going toe to toe with someone and fighting back? Um, I, don't, I don't really think so. I think his his demeanor, his posture is that of a fighter, of a defiant person. Joe Biden for years was known as a fighter. He was a very aggressive fight back kind of politician. So to be like removing that essential part of his identity as a politician in the face of a, like a, a fight, a real race is, is a curious stroke. Like he can't help it in press conferences. You still see that guy come out at times when he takes issue with a question sure. from someone. But in general, the demeanor of like grandpa's here to tell us about when he was on a sitcom is is an odd one, honestly, at a time when a lot of Americans are kind of freaked out about the future. The Trump strategy is fighter, but it's also just completely drown you in words mm -hmm. so that if there is a mistake, you will just forget it at some point or it will be consumed by nine other mistakes. And eventually everybody will just be confused and give up. Yeah, that's true. I wonder, do you think it's possible that Trump has an old guy moment that somehow like obviates all this Biden angst in the next nine months? Like, is there a world in which he trips and falls or he has a gaffe that is unrecoverable? He's walked right up to it, but again, it just seems to get swallowed in so much other stuff. Yeah. And his and whatever he has projected to the world doesn't depend on policy accuracy in the same way a Biden speech does. Seth Meyers did ask Biden about the age thing, and Biden had an answer, obviously pretty workshopped, ready for that. All jokes aside, according to recent polling, this is a real concern for American voters. How do you address that concern going forward as you come up to the 2024 election? Well, a couple of things. Number one, you got to take a look at the other guy. He's about as old as I am, but he can't even remember his wife's name. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> number one. Number two, <laughs> it's about how old your ideas are. Look, I mean, this is a guy who wants to take us back. He wants to take us back on Roe v. Wade. He wants to take us back on a whole range of issues that are 50, 60 years. They've been solid American positions. And, um, and I really mean this sincerely. The, uh, I think it's about about the future. So we'll workshop the delivery a little more, maybe. Yeah, it's got to tighten it up. But that's perhaps the right idea. I mean, he's right. It's accurate. It's not inaccurate. Donald Trump is also old. You know, a lot of pundits have gone out of their way to point this out in the last few weeks. I think that 
you know, we're, we'll talk about John Stewart, but he made a big point at drawing some some equivalencies between these two old guys. And even though one guy seems is a little bit younger and seems maybe a little bit uh, more hale and hearty right now, they're they're both old men. That's not weird to say. I don't think they're both old men. Did you see that Donald Trump recorded a video response to Biden's late night appearance? I did not. But- Perfectly dovetails to what you said, because he had this whole explanation of how he didn't forget his wife's name <laughs> and that how when he looked like he was uncertainly getting on a stage, he was merely imitating Biden uncertainly mounting a stage. <laughs> if you have to explain the jokes, uh, maybe the jokes aren't quite landing. But somebody said this on Twitter, you know, part of what Biden's strategy may be is to goad Trump into talking more, right? Goad Trump into strange places. And when Donald Trump's like, I need to get in front of a camera. And record a response to Joe Biden on Seth Meyers. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe you've won some kind of political victory there. I think it stands. I I think it benefits Trump. I think the whole the whole spectacle of this benefits Trump because Trump is actually facing real legitimate, scary financial and legal issues every day. There were like big, big changes in both of those topics in the last 24 hours. And the fact that you and I are talking about this, I think, is a win for Trump. That there's that the spectacle of what happened on, you know, late night with Seth Meyers is a sign that people are going to overlook meaningful aspects of the campaign, which is what happens every year, right? Like whatever is the most meaningful thing isn't necessarily the most um, predominant thing in the conversation. Is their age the most important thing? I think it speaks more to the exasperation that voters have generationally than it does to these two individuals personally. Yeah. And my, my take on the media has always been, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Like, you know, if you look at the top of the New York times homepage, it's Donald Trump's financial and legal scandals. Problem with Joe Biden is he's not doing interviews, right? He's done a third as many interviews as Donald Trump, a fourth as many interviews as Obama to this point in his campaign. So this is what you put out there. You yeah. put out a tiny amount of stuff, and this is what we have to judge you on. All right, topic number two for you. We've been talking about media sadness a lot on this podcast. And in the list, WAMU, Engadget, The Messenger, and on and on was a site near and dear to your heart, Pitchfork, the music site, which was absorbed to use the very weird verb of this time, into GQ. Tell us about your history with Pitchfork. Sure. Um, I, I genuinely don't think I would have a career without the site. And I think it spoke, it speaks to, my experience with it speaks to a very particular era in internet writing, I would describe it as. So if you don't mind, I'll tell like a little personal aspect of this. So I had a, I had a, I had a David Shoemaker. I had a, I had a close friend in high school who, um, you know, we bonded over the movie Fight Club. We bonded over Oasis. We bonded over, um, you know, we were both uh, on the video yearbook and the school newspaper. We were editors together. Um, his name is Ryan Dommel. He's a great guy. And Ryan introduced me to a former Rolling Stone editor named Michael Goldberg who ran a site called NewMew.net when I was in college. And Ryan had been writing for this site. And I started writing for the site essentially for free. Maybe reviews would be for 10 or 15 bucks. And just writing about new music. I was a huge hip-hop fan. I was writing about basically underground hip-hop, independent record labels, putting out rap records. And because I was writing those records in a very nascent time in internet writing, this is roughly 2000, 2001, 2002, I amassed what was then an important thing, which was clips. I had published material. And because I had that published material and I had this relationship with Ryan, who was always very encouraging, um, and we were the same age, but I, he just always seemed wiser about all of this stuff than I was. Um, I was able to send an email, basically a cold email to the editors at Pitchfork and say, hey, I'm a music writer. I know a lot about rap. I'm really interested in 
basically deepening the coverage of hip hop at the at your site. I was a big fan of what Pitchfork's mission was. I was always a little a little bit hot and cold on their approach to things, you know, especially in the late 90s, early 2000s, Pitchfork was um very snarky and, you know, very attitudinal in its writing in a way that sometimes I thought was really compelling and profound and at other times I thought was kind of churlish or immature. But there was a real dearth of hip hop coverage. Now, far be it for me, white kid from Long Island, to be the you know the authority on that. But I wanted to pitch in and contribute. I felt like I had a lot to say, so I had a tryout circa 2002, 2003, and I basically failed it. Like I wrote a couple of reviews on Spec and was more or less ignored by Ryan Schreiber, who was the founder of the site. But I give him credit for responding to that first email I sent. And then roughly like a year or a year and a half later. I started getting in touch with a couple of other editors, Scott Plagenhoff, Mark Richardson, people who were kind of critical to that site at that time. And Ryan had started writing for that, the site at that time as well. And I just said, hey, like, I'm a huge fan. There's a Public Enemy Greatest Hits album. I'm, I, I'm, I can do it. I can write about this. I know everything about Public Enemy. They're from Long Island. They're a band I followed religiously. Like, I really understand how much they mean to the history of music, really, at this point. They let me write about them. They let me write about Twista's album Kamikaze in 2004. At that time, Kanye West was a huge figure for me personally. And he was an artist who I thought was basically about to be a generational bullhorn, which he did turn out to be. And I, I think following him closely led to a lot of success. But so I started writing about this kind of music on this site where there were not a lot of writers. There'd been a handful. There'd been Sam Chenault, I remember, Raleigh Pemberton, a handful of guys who were covering hip hop back then, but a very small number. So I joined and started writing about big artists. And then a few other guys started joining. My friend Nick Sylvester, my friend Zach Barron, my friend Tom Bryan, my friend Pete LaFischel. And we all started hanging out in New York and we were all writing for Pitchfork and we were all very aspirational. And we had this little like clubhouse mentality about how even inside the Pitchfork machine, which was just a website with album reviews and news and the occasional feature interview, we were helping evolve the character of the site. So I look back on my time there and I, I wrote for roughly six to seven years um, on and off writing record reviews, single album reviews, the occasional feature. I covered a whole swath of genres of music. I wrote about Queens of the Stone Age. I wrote about R. Kelly. I wrote about Sade. I wrote about a lot of different artists over that time. I've got the whole list here. Gorillaz, Jay-Z, on and on and on. Yeah, I wrote about a lot of lot of artists. I interviewed artists for the site. I mean, there's also a lot of work that I published on the site that has been deleted, um, that is no, lo- no longer represented there as so much of our digital work has been over the years. But it, it really did change my life because even though what I wanted to do was work in magazines, the work that I was doing at Pitchfork was by far the most read. It was the thing that I clearly had like made my reputation on, writing about late registration and giving it a 9.5 on Pitchfork in a weird way certified me to a generation of people that cared about reading music reviews. And I, I'm forever grateful for the fact that I got to do anything where anybody was reading or paying attention. It's the same attitude I have now about everything that we're doing, where I'm just like, it's remarkable to me that people listen to our shows, read our website. Like, it's just so, so exciting every day. I don't mean that like in a sense of false modesty. Like, I'm really pa- like sincerely passionate about that. But it clearly helped because I would be able to get my foot in the door at other places by saying, I'm the guy who reviewed late registration. I'm the guy who reviewed, um, we got it for cheap, the clips mixtape, which was very popular at that time in the mid two thousands. So 
it was a critical place for me developmentally. Everything I wrote there is pretty much terrible. Like the pieces are so bad, Brian. I feel like I can't believe that that <laughs> stuff is still there. Uh, I hope people don't go back and read it. This may be this. false modesty because the ones I read this morning were not terrible. I, I, that's nice of you to say, but I know that they're not good. Like I've edited thousands of pieces now. I know what makes for good criticism. And uh, it, that wasn't it. But they, they were letting me basically learn on the fly and take chances on me. And they were encouraging me to take on bigger and bigger assignments. And so... You know, it became a safe haven for people like me. There were a lot of young writers and editors who really made their bones at a site like that. Now, the site did not pay well. I was a staff writer there, but I was making 50 bucks a review as a staff writer. It's not like now where if you're a staff writer at most places, you're a full-time employee. In, in theory, maybe you even have benefits. Maybe you even have a 401k. Who knows? This was ad hoc internet criticism in its earliest stage, in its larval stage. And so because of that, you basically had to have another job if you wanted to be a staff writer at Pitchfork, because it would be impossible to pay your bills just writing those reviews. So I was lucky that I was able to do that. I was lucky that some of my employers at magazines at the time were willing to let me continue to do that. Um, it wasn't until I took sort of a slightly bigger editing job at Vibe that I stopped writing for Pitchfork because it felt in competition. But it was a completely different era. The site obviously went on to get bigger and bigger and bigger over time. It developed this incredible reputation for its king-making abilities for artists. You know, it, 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 kind of crowned, you know, Arcade Fire, for example. And they went on to become one of the signature acts of the 21st century. They, I think, evolved their reputation really smartly post-acquisition from Condé Nast. I think they widely diversified their staff. They widely diversified the kinds of music they covered, which is to say not just genres, but realms of popularity. Like, I think Pitchfork's identity is as an indie site, a site that covers Modest Mouse, you know, and they eventually became a place that could cover African jazz and Beyonce and a Christmas album and ambient noise music. And there are very, I, there are very few places that were doing that at scale as recently as this absorption that you're talking about. So I think they were just like a critical voice in the, the cultural writing landscape. I, I mourn what happened with them. I think it's very, very challenging to to make money on criticism is something that I'll say and I I you know there are a variety of reasons for that but I think that the when they were an independent company the systems that they put in place were clearly sustainable but once they were sold it seems like it made things much more challenging but I have a lot of love and respect for all the pretty much everybody who walked through there and tried to contribute in some way they get sold to Condé Nast in 2015 Let's talk a little bit about that undoing, because I think that is interesting. The one culprit I hear mentioned again and again is the Spotify algorithm. Yeah, yeah. Which can recommend music to you, and you don't need to go seek out reviews on places like Pitchfork or Pitchfork itself. Does that track with you? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a factor at a minimum. I think there were probably way... The thing is, that it's a question of scale. Is Does music criticism feel as vital today as it did in 2005? I do not think it does, for that exact reason that you cited. In addition to that, music to me is the most highly subjective of the, the arts that we closely track. And so we think about this when we think about podcasts at, at The Ringer. Music podcasts for a long time were very difficult to crack. Eventually, we identified that there, you have to be kind of categorical and structural to make them successful. So if you look at the shows that we do at The Ringer, every single album, dissect, bandsplain, 60 songs that explain the 90s, those shows, all of which are great and all of which work as shows, 
have these clear, tight structures. In many ways, they're often nostalgic. They're looking back on things that have happened. Covering the contemporary landscape of popular music is really, really hard. And it's hard because people don't want to read about something new. They just want to listen to it as soon as possible and decide whether they like it or not. So I, ha- you know, I think that's clearly a factor. But how, how big did Pitchfork need to be? I think that's the question that you have to ask when a company like that gets acquired. You know, when, it, when an organization gets acquired and hoovered up, whether it's by, you know, equity capital or by a, a technology company or just by some shadowy investor, there's just a question of growth. Every day people say, how big does something have to get? It just seems like the expectations for a site like Pitchfork, which was always meant to be an, a niche culture site, probably got too big. And then it made it harder to justify its evolution. So I think that's a shame. I don't know enough about what was going on behind the scenes, but that's my impression of it. There's a good Max Tanny piece about that in Semaphore. And so essentially Condé Nast's interest in Pitchfork is in a couple of things. One is they want digital brands to pair alongside their old media brands. They want events, branded events, which they've done some of. And it sounds like from Tanny's piece have been somewhat successful at least. And then they want to appeal to the kids. We could argue that the kids read Pitchfork, who are the quote unquote kids, maybe they're kids when compared to New Yorker readers. Yes. But those, that's what they want. And Pitchfork's founders say in the piece, look, we turned down the VC money over and over again because we didn't want to have to scale up. We we did not want to try to do that because that seemed dangerous to us. And we only sold when we thought, okay, there's this guardian of media and journalism and magazines. Right. Well... I had a short stint at Condé Nast. I worked for a couple of years at GQ in the early 2010s before I, you and I started working together at Grantland. And I would say that back then, the digital strategy was not evolved. I would say that there was <laughs> an, a complete lack of emphasis on anything digital, that the, the magazines were driving the business almost singularly. And they were really late to the party. There were people that were trying to make change. It's not like there were, everybody had their heads in the sand. Even the people at the highest levers of power that I would talk to knew that it wasn't right, but there was a, a feeling of holding on to a golden age that they had lived through in the late 90s and, and 2000s that they just couldn't give up on. And so because they failed to evolve in those eras, basically everybody is paying the tax on that now. The fact that the company was not built to be a... Um, a modernized digital media company circa 2007, which is when they really should have gotten their shit together. I think that when you make an acquisition like Pitchfork, but you're not built to support and grow a Pitchfork because they weren't, you know, that when you hear, when you look at Max's piece and you look at some of the things that they were suggesting to get people to do, it was like, how do we, you know, get you two to perform at a concert so that we can then sell more ad revenue against U2's performance. It's like <laughs> U2 performing at a concert has nothing to do with Pitchfork's identity. That's not what they do. That's what Rolling Stone did. Pitchfork came along to subvert what Rolling Stone was doing. That was the whole point of the enterprise. So when you lose sight of that, or when you try to say like, this is a place that can reunite the white stripes, it's like the white stripes <laughs> are not getting reunited. That's not, that's not something that publications do. That was by far the best detail in this piece, it's by rid- the way. It's ridiculous. So, I think it shows like a real lack of insight into the editorial identity of the thing that they own. And that is common. I think that's common in media acquisition culture. And we've been watching it basically transpire pretty much since newspapers started getting hoovered up in the 2000s, where you just don't really know what the character of a site or a a magazine or a newspaper is. And so the people that are steering the ship misdirect. But I find the Pitchfork one to be quite curious because it always just seemed like it was meant to be a certain size. 
You know, the idea of trying to get to like 75 million uniques by publishing reviews of William Bazinski's disintegration loops is just psychotic. Like that's just never going to happen. So I, I, I find it really tragic in that very modest respect. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. You've watched the last six weeks of media apocalypse along with us. Does anything stick out to you from the news you've been reading about all these publications slimming down, disappearing entirely? I think they're all for individual reasons that are probably ultimately correlated. And for the most part, my guess is that it's just about, it's not that these places couldn't generate revenue or couldn't even attend, potentially make profit. It's that, that those profits were not enough profit for the expectation against the portfolio which is just a really callous way of saying that like people just want to make more money. Companies want to make more money. And the other thing is that, honestly, it's really hard to run a media business. It's a frantic and chaotic kind of work. It's a people kind of work. And there's a lot of people management that goes into that work. It's also um, high stakes. And if you make a mistake, it can be existence threatening. And so I think that there's a cost benefit analysis at the highest level in boardrooms that goes into some of those decisions where people just say like, is this worth it to us to potentially torpedo our business by continuing to let people publish things? So I think all of those things together. And then also like, candidly, some of these businesses are failing businesses. Like some of these sites, no matter what good work is being done at them, will never be profitable because it, the expectation that in an advertising generated environment, like giving people what they want if you're not willing to acknowledge that there's a certain kind of thing that people want in this space, it is harder to succeed. So I think it's very easy to romanticize and valorize, you know, a strong editorial identity and an independence. And I think the way that you talk about this is very wise and I, I really respect it. But I've also been able to like see the other side in the last five or 10 years of my career. And sometimes things don't work. And so what do you do when something doesn't work? Like how long can people agree to throw good money after bad. So, you know, that's not a judgment on any individual circumstance because I don't know what's going on at every single company. I think in some cases there are horrendous actors and in other cases it's just the business that didn't, didn't work out. Um, it does feel, this does feel finally now to me though like 2008 felt when things were really, really bad. And I got laid off in 2000, uh, the beginning of 2009. Um, I, most of my friends lost their jobs at that time. I don't, you know, I, it, it, it felt very scary. That it was felt a like, horrible year for media. Yeah, it, it felt like this was a mistake. A lot of people thought about and did change direction and take different kinds of jobs. I almost moved away from media because I was scared I was about to get married. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. We, I'm, you and I both get the like, 
what should I do? Like, how do I break into the industry or what should I do? Like, I'm done giving advice. I don't even know what to say. Like, I, what could you say to say, well, here's how clearly how you'll make it. Yeah. Yeah. And even the more elemental questions I do, should I be a journalist? You know, not even, not even, not even the how to, but, but the, should I do this at all? It's a harder and harder question to answer. We did a whole segment about this because it, I just don't, I don't know what to say. Yeah. You know, I used to have good lines, very practiced lines, but like, hey, you know, the, 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 the economics of it make no sense. But, and now it's hard for me to even get to that but. But I do think there's a core of people out there that just want to do this job, that want to be journalists, that have that mind. There's nowhere else that's going to go and be happy other than journalism or media broadly defined. And so I don't know where I would steer them if I don't steer them here. I think the other thing to consider is that there is a much blurrier space between journalism and writer and content creator and that 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 has created a kind of anxiety in our work where are we here to entertain are we here to inform are we here to educate are we here to report are we here to self-actualize feelings and ideas that we understand better than someone else Uh, like yes like in our mission at the ringer yes but if you want to be a newspaper reporter it's harder if you want to be a, if you want to be a magazine editor, you're insane. Like that's not a good idea right now because the that those expectations and those dreams that I had in 1997 don't make sense anymore. So I think that these things do evolve, and I feel like we're in the middle of a big transitional moment where some people are just looking at the landscape and saying it probably would be more financially beneficial for me to become a YouTube influencer than somebody who is going to report on Gaza right now. And it certainly seems easier. It seems more profitable. And there will be like a brain drain, ultimately, uh, generationally, if that's something that happens. Because if you are even, if you're in college right now, and you're in J school, and you're tracking what's going on, are like, unless your parents are independently wealthy, like, how do you take the leap? I, I don't know. I really don't know how you do it. Let's talk about one traveler in this fraught media landscape or somebody who recently departed it. Peter King still weird to say peter king of nbc <laughs> i never really <laughs> never really got around to that yeah when we were doing the uh the segment about him the other day i was like what's the name of his column now because yeah. i still call it monday morning quarterback yeah. yeah he left with a big goodbye on monday what do you what did you make of the way peter king figured out the internet uh i think he's he's clearly in a very strange way connected to pitchfork right i mean these kind of like gen x elder millennial icons of uh <laughs> of mega reading you know these like overlong pitchfork reviews and and essays are sort of connected to our desire to read the 4000 word monday morning quarterback column which i read religiously as well in the 2000s and just like bill simmons's column was like my connective tissue to a sport that I loved that could pop culturally make me understand it. And Bill was the absolute best at writing about the NBA, among other things. And Peter, I was just, it was crack. Like I, I read Len Pascarelli on ESPN.com as well, but it was just like a completely different experience, you know, reading Peter's columns and he figured something out. He figured out that at that time, like we wanted to read long, we wanted to read. He, I mean, he reinvented the dot dash column, right. To like the dot paragraph column. And that bite-sized approach was really, really smart. 15 years later, I was like kind of done with his coffee order. But at, <laughs> at the time, it felt novel. It's only so many times yeah, yeah. that coffee nerdness can really hit home on a Monday morning. <laughs> yeah. It was just also not that sophisticated a coffee take. So no. I'm not sure what we were going for there. But I mean, look, he also just had something that to this day, I think matters in the media landscape, which is like he was an info guy. 
he was connected to people who were feeding him information that he was filtering through his column that had great value. He wasn't doing it the way that Woj does it or the way that Schefter does it. He was doing it in a, like a slightly like a folksier, more analytical, more storytelling kind of way about the narratives of the sport at the time. And I always found it appealing. I think sometimes he was just like harebrained and weird, but uh, <laughs> I, I also just, I liked reading what he was doing and he clearly inspired a generation of people. It is weird. I heard you talking with Shoemaker about this, that not as many people as you would think were able to replicate his approach, both at SI and beyond. You know, I think what Zach Lowe does is is clearly influenced in some way, even if Zach was not a religious Peter King writer, uh, reader, by what he by what Peter did. You know, sure. ten things I think I think the Zach Lowe column, which I was editing at Grantland ten years ago, that's a Peter King riff. You know what I mean? That's like a it's a modified Peter Vesey column. It's a modified Peter Gammons column. Yep. Like Bob Ryan, Bob Ryan, all, Sunday sports pages all yes, the way back to the seventies. All those guys who figured out that. We want to move a little bit more quickly through things. Like not everything should be Gary Smith. And um, so I, that alone is like a mega contribution to at least the contemporary media. It is. I'm always fascinated by these moments in sports writing where there's two arrows pointing different directions. One is Woj, where it's like, I'm going to go try to be the next Mike Lupica for the next 30 years, or I'm going to go do basketball scoops and become Woj. And he goes that way. And the business, I think, changes as a result of that. I think Peter King, you could argue, is the same thing. You know, talks about in his farewell column going to SI mm -hmm. and feeling completely outgunned in literary terms by Gary Smith, Rick Riley, Frank DeFord, name the whole list. So he's going to give you tonnage. And then you see this separation, especially in the early 2000s. There's your magazine writer who is going to give you 3,200 extremely polished and reported words and then disappear in a puff of smoke and come back six weeks later with another piece. Versus Peter King, who every Monday morning is going to be your pal with 10,000 words on the NFL. Here you go, pal. Boom. And, and guess which one of those won out in the end? Now, I'm not saying Peter did that. You know, we could argue the forces of journalism and technology were going to push us in that direction anyway. But the world of Substack and the world of sports writing now sure looks a lot more like Peter King to me than the other. It does. It's an interesting question of how fungible you are as a potential writer, because I'm sure that many people, I'm sure that Peter King looked at Frank DeFord and said to himself, I could never do what he does. And I'm sure if Frank DeFord cared enough, he would look at Peter King and be like, I don't think I could do that, even though Frank DeFord could do a lot. So it really depends on who you are and what you can accomplish. Peter King has something that is pretty rare that I have a lot of admiration for is somebody who basically came up through the internet, which is he has a motor, you know what I mean? To yep. use an NFL combine word. Like he really could just go every week. He never let you down on delivering that tonnage that you're talking about. That is a skill, man. It's hard. This is really hard work. I know people think it's like, oh, people just sit in front of their keyboards and they don't do anything. It's like that guy was clearly on the phone nonstop. He's watching games all the time. And he, when he delivers, he delivers at weight. So I think that there's something to that. I don't know if that's a good lesson. That's the other thing. That might not be the best lesson that what you need to do is just like pour as much into the ether as you <laughs> possibly can and hope somebody takes a bite. That's also a little dicey for what the expectation should be for a writer. I do think it's interesting though that like that we lived through a long form era that it feels like has, has, has also disappeared into the ether in mm -hmm. some ways. The Peter King thing, though, I don't, is that gone? Like, who are the signature long columnists? Like, Bill Barnwell's still doing what he does. 
there's some writers that I guess Mike Sando is somebody who's still writing that column. Obviously, our own Ben Solak is amazing, but like it doesn't feel like they're used. There's the same hierarchy or sort of like this is the king of the jungle thing that we had 10 years ago when it comes to sports writing. Yeah, and it might not be possible in the same way now just because the world's so different. But I do think there is that particular type of sports writer, and I would not recommend this as a lifestyle choice <laughs> unless this is you, but there's a particular kind of sports writer that it just cannot be contained. They have so much. If you hear about Peter Gammons in the 70s of the Globe, that's what happened. I've just got so much. Here's a whole page, baby, on Sunday. Fill her up. And yeah. you do it every Sunday. And there are types like that. You know, Peter King started doing this in 1997 at the suggestion of an editor because he had all the stuff in his notebook that he couldn't use. Also, the interesting lesson here, too, is if you read those old Peter King columns, they were often about Peter King writing about the NFL. Mm. That also became a template that was used a lot. The Not just the story as we would read it, maybe in SI, but the story of the person doing the story. There's a certain podcasty self-consciousness in there as I record this podcast looking at you. There is there that sense I think creeps into a lot of sports writing later. There's something that casting directors look for when they're looking for acting talent, which is not are you a good actor or not did you memorize your lines effectively, but if, essentially are you interesting? Are you interesting to look at? Are you interesting to listen to? Are you interesting to observe do things? And Peter King was interesting to observe as a persona. And I don't know how self-conscious he was about that thing that you're describing, but it's something that is increasingly hard to find and is also increasingly essential to success in media right now. You have to kind of personify yourself, personify yourself. And he had that and it, it felt like it came naturally to him. The same way I feel like it comes naturally to Bill, the same way, like most of these people, when you meet them too, they're exactly who they sound like on podcasts or in columns. They're not different. They may be amped up a little bit, mm -hmm. but they're, they're genuine. And so it's hard to replicate that too. It's also hard to be 26 and try to replicate it. When you haven't lived, you haven't figured out really what you think about things. Only yet. had so much coffee by that stage. In your life. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Have you caught up on John Stewart? I have. I've been watching. Um, I wasn't watching until you asked me to do the show, but now I'm, I'm here. I am. And I've, I've watched it. And your impressions. Uh, I had forgotten how much of his routine is just vaudevillian mugging for the camera. I, and is it overemphasized now? I wasn't really consuming the Apple TV stuff. Same. So I don't know. And I knew he was doing it in its heyday. And I was a big fan of what he was doing. I thought he really had hit upon something generationally special in terms of how he talked about the news. But I couldn't believe how much reliance there, was, there has been in the first few episodes on... Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> as he bulges his eyes at you yeah. and, or glowers or does a spit take. Um, I think the writing is still sharp and I think his general like um, exasperation is appropriate for how a lot of people feel right now. But it's pretty sticky. It's pretty sticky and it's always after a clip. Play a clip of Tucker Carlson, play a clip of Trump or Biden and then come back to the camera and here's me going, hmm? <laughs> <laughs> Doing that look you talk about. Yeah. I, it is. Have you, have you liked it? Yes. I find it comforting. I'm trying to separate about how much of that is nostalgia for the salad days of Jon Stewart when that just felt very cutting edge and different than anything we've seen on TV. Also, I think there's a lot of echoes of podcasting in there. There is. I think all of us, whether we admit it or not, or even realize it or not, learned a lot from that. Yeah, we, you're right. We talk about things like Jon Stewart talks about the news. We may not, you know, have a camera here to mug for, but we do the, the audio equivalent of that. 
<laughs> yeah, I think there's truth to that. I mean, I, he obviously got some flack, I guess, for the way that he both sides his way through that first monologue about um, Trump and Biden and their age and the kind of discontent around this being the race that we have. Uh, I watched that last night for the first time and I was like, this seems t- totally on the money. Like, I, I don't really like whether or not I think like I think I hope I hope Joe Biden is elected. I don't, certainly don't mind saying that into a podcast, but uh, I don't think anything that he said was out of bounds or weird or not part of the good fight. It's like he's hosting a comedy show. Yeah. Like, I, this is the perfect election to do this. Yes. Both candidates are wildly unpopular. Yes. So you're speaking to Democrats who have great fears about their candidate, yes. even if they desperately want Joe Biden to win and think democracy ends if Joe Biden doesn't win. You're still speaking to those those fears, right? This is this is the time for him to come back. Yeah, I think that he's also like an like a pressure valve for malaise. You know, the scent because th- this is there's not even like enthusiasm for anything in our political discourse right now. It's like Mitch McConnell announced that he's stepping aside this week uh, as Senate Majority Leader. That's a huge story. And I don't think people care. (laughs) Basically, the person who has presided over political power in a meaningful way for decades and has authored significant change in our country. Is there even like a conversation going on about that right now beyond your typical like political hounds? I don't I don't feel like there is. I haven't gotten a phone call from my dad about that, you know, (laughs) and I think it passed that test. No. And I think it's symptomatic of a kind of like, uh. Uh, like there's kind of a retreat to the self going on in our culture right now. And so it's interesting to watch him try to manifest that feeling on TV. Um, and, and now also doing it about Gaza or doing it about other topics that are going to rise to the surface, which is challenging. That was in episode three. If you're going to both, if you're going to try to do both sides, if you're going to try to be that kind of comedian, that was certainly his biggest challenge. Yes. To try to take on that topic. Did you read any of the Richard Lewis obits that were popping up on Twitter? Yet? Just the ones on Twitter, yeah. Just the ones where he seemed to know everyone, didn't he? Did you know that he was sliding into the DMs of all your favorite sports writers? I didn't. I didn't. He's kind of the, he's kind of the, is he the Bruce Springsteen of boomer comedians where just like everyone agrees he's great? Yes. It, it surprised me. I think, I think he has multi-generational appeal, right? Because he has a, he has in terms of, the love for Richard Lewis. It's like memories of the nineties, memories of a particular time for like HBO and comedy central and comedy. Yes. And all the way through with curb all the way through now the Twitter persona. And then there were these interesting, like read like Dave McMenamin is DMing with Richard Lewis. And I'm like, what? Okay. That's, That's so strange. Diana Rossini is DM friends with Richard Lewis. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I would have never clocked that. I mean, I guess, you could spot Richard Lewis at the occasional uh, courtside in an NBA game from time to time. Clearly a sports fan. Famous famous NBA fan, yeah. sure. Um, also a famous cinephile, Richard Lewis. He talked a lot about that, and I saw a lot of clips. And, you know, my version of Twitter now is just people talking about how there are Jean Eustache films that, that he, he loved, The Mother and the Whore, which, like, <laughs> no one has seen, you know, was out of print for years. But he would try to take, when he was dating younger women, he talked about how he would try to show younger women the works of Ingmar Bergman or or the mother and the whore. So like he clearly was a person who lived a, a round and complete life. I find it really weird that he passed away while this season of Curb is airing because there was a joke in two episodes ago about oh, Larry being in his will. And so my heart breaks, you know, I love I love Larry David. Larry David is a god to me. And so I'm, I can only imagine how devastated he is by this, all his friends. It's weird though when you learn that someone who is that kind of persona that we're talking about with Peter King, someone who is typified in our mind in a very specific way, was using Twitter 
the way that one of us might, you know, was living a more common life than you might expect. Yeah, and using sports Twitter in that way. <laughs> for some reason, that's funnier than anything else. Uh, a couple of items for me that uh, perked up my interest. We like to keep track of anybody on this podcast who is breaking their silence mm. out there. And we had multiple breakings of silence after that failed Willy Wonka immersive experience in Glasgow. Both the actor who played Willy broke his silence and the beaten down Oompa Loompa who was photographed broke her silence. Usually that term is like a famous person who is avoiding the press. When they break it, do you think it's like a hammer to glass? Is it like a <laughs> is it like Jean-Claude Van Damme with a with a board? Like what is what's breaking here? What's the physical object? Well, that's what's funny, right? Was the was the Oompa Loompa really hiding <laughs> from the media? Did well, we just need to get the Oompa Loompa's name and we then just weren't looking for him. It was really more of a height issue, I think, ultimately. <laughs> Thanks to Joseph Bean Khan and Ratty for pointing that out. Also, we keep a running tally of any athlete mentioning the haters and doubters who have stood in their way, especially athletes who do not, in fact, have many notable haters and doubters. This week's winner, Anthony Kim, golfer who has not played in 12 years, coming back at a live event in Saudi Arabia, also broke his silence, incidentally, but put up a video on Instagram that said, hello, haters, I'm back, <laughs> to which the entire golf media went, no, no, we all want to watch you play. Who are the haters here? Speaking of um, my time writing about rap, I uh, I interviewed a rapper named Mano back in 2008 who had a wonderful song called High Haters that I highly recommend anybody out there. Anthony Kim really did break his silence. He didn't talk forever. No, I mean, we, we tried to pursue him for stories at Grantland and The Ringer over the last 10 years because his story is an interesting one. Whether or not anybody was hating on him, I don't think that they ultimately were. Uh, I don't know. I'll, I just like to say hi to my haters, you know? Okay, you didn't think I could go. make it back to the press box, but here I am. <laughs> <laughs> Screw you guys. Thanks to our pals, Sean Zach of Golf Magazine for that one. I got two surprise questions for you. This is this ain't no Seth Meyers interview. We yeah, keep our clearly. guests off balance here at the press box. All right, here we go. Question number one. You host a movie podcast. Yes. You've been a producer on a number of documentaries in yes. recent years. Would you like to write or direct a movie someday? No. Not at all. No. I'm never not, comes, not, never floats into your head. I'm not interested in that. Uh I do like producing. The, the docs and, and would be interested in producing other kinds of things for sure. Um, I don't think I have the talent to write a movie. I don't have the ingenuity, the imagination. Um, it is a very structural job and I've learned a lot about it in the last seven or eight years doing the show and getting to know people who do this really well. Uh, directing, I when I was 15, I thought that that was something that I would want to do. And then when you get to know filmmakers, you learn that so much of their job is managerial and that the vision part is what gets you the opportunity to make the thing. But then the making of the thing is a very mechanical kind of job mm -hmm. and you have to have a taste for it. You have to have the patience for it, the ability to do it. And I don't think I would have the skill or the interest, but producing and being able to participate creatively, but without being that manager in that way um, would be really appealing to me. It's a generous question. I think people think that I'm like some sort of stifled creative when it comes to this, but it's never really something I pursued. I never really have written a screenplay of a movie I want to make. Um, I just, I have a genuine admiration for the people that do it because it is really hard. And if you ever, if it ever sounds like I'm being a little bit nice to somebody about a movie that everyone thinks stinks, it's because I know how fucking hard it is to get something not just written and directed, but financed, produced, to get actors to appear in it, to edit it together, to cut sound to it. It's really hard work. And even relative to my experience working in media. So uh, I, I tend to be more 
the older I get, the more generous I feel towards anybody who gets anything made. All right. Question number two, the filmmaker I must interview or I fear my life will never be complete is. I'm, uh, I'm dying without Martin Scorsese. I'm dying. I tried really hard on Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm not afraid to say it. I really wanted to talk to him for the movie. I really love that movie. He's available, isn't he? He is available. For some reason, he has eluded my reach. Um, and I've been very fortunate. Like, I've been able to talk to a lot of my heroes. Yeah. Um, the show is in a place now where people will ask if they can come on the show. You know, their reps will ask if they can come on the show. I don't take that for granted either. I think that's fucked. That, that would break my 15-year-old brain if, if I told them what the people who have been on the show. Quentin Tarantino came on the show to play a game. Like, that's crazy that that happened. But Scorsese, for whatever reason, he's done, he's probably done 30, 40 interviews for the Killers of the Power of Moon cycle, but I just couldn't, I couldn't lock it down. And he's somebody who means a lot to me. And he's somebody who also is clearly at the end and probably isn't going to do that much more. There's only so many David Grand books left for him to film. I know, I know. Well, he's doing the next, wager, right? Well, his next film is about Jesus. Oh, right. There's a Jesus. Uh, yeah, there's a short film that I think he's co-directing with Kent Jones, also a media to movie writing and directing convert. Yes, there's, um, an, there's an interesting one. Yes. So I think he's making this Jesus film. And then in theory, he's making The Wager, the grand book, which is also a mega blockbuster. And I don't know. I, I, how many more movies can he make? He's in his 80s. And who else is on the list besides Scorsese? That's a good question. Um, never, never talked to Fincher. And I think Fincher, this is pure speculation, but I don't mind saying it to you now. I think Fincher's, at least Fincher's reps, know how weirdly obsessed I am with him and don't want to put me in a room with him. <laughs> you scared uh, him off. Yeah. yeah. But most, I, I've been fortunate, I think, to basically interview this like young cohort of filmmakers that I really love. The, the Greta Gerwig. Greta, the Safties, Damien Chazelle, Jordan Peele. Um, I, I've done a couple of events with Ryan Coogler. Like, there are, there's this group of people now that Ari Aster's a part of that, Robert Eggers. Like, there's this sub 45 group of directors who it's been exciting to be doing the show while they're emerging. And I'm not friends with those people, but they know who I am and they come back to the show basically for every movie. And I feel really fortunate that that's something that happens. So I'd like to be able to continue to do that. And I, I'm trying to find more time to interview international filmmakers, shine more of a light on their work and first time directors. Like that's the thing that I'm trying to spend most of my time doing. I, there's not as much time you know, I got to interview William Friedkin before he passed away. That was big for me. I was very happy that I got to do that. But um, my wish list is kind of working in the opposite direction, where I'm trying to now, I'm not checking names off the list. I'm trying to find people I'm excited about going forward. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's huzzah, a toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Speaking of movies, we got a wonderful idea a couple of weeks ago from listener Zach Brooks. He said, Curtis and Fennessy should rewatch and review The War Room. Yes. I put a bad signal out there weeks ago. If you did not watch, this is a 1993 campaign <laughs> doc directed by D.A. Pennebecker and Chris Hedges. 
It follows the spin artist who helped Bill Clinton beat George H.W. Bush and Ross Perot in the 92 presidential campaign. Where do we start with The War Room? Well, it's a movie that could have only happened at that time. It's a movie that's remarkable to me that it even happened. It's made by world-class documentarians, and it is a complete accident. So the intention of this movie, which was pitched by R.J. Cutler and Linda Ettinger, who went on to become very successful documentarians in their own right, was pitched to Penny Baker and Hedges. Penny Baker, one of the five most significant documentarians of the 20th century. He made, you know, the Dylan film Don't Look Back. He made shot Ziggy Stardust uh, for David Bowie. He shot Monterey Pop. You know, he's he sh- he made uh, short documentaries about John F. Kennedy at the outset of his presidency. He was approached by Cutler and Ettinger to make what seemed like a wide-scale documentary about this presidential race that covered the candidates, that covered the machinery of their campaigns, that covered the feeling of the nation at this time. And basically everyone said no except for Clinton's, the internal machine of Clinton's campaign, Mm -hmm. and particularly these two signature figures. And God, they lucked out. Because they just ran into two absolute stars in George Stephanopoulos and James Carville. In print, it's what we call a ride-around. Because even getting Carville and Stephanopoulos, they wanted Clinton. And if you watch the stuff on the Criterion disc, by the way, I bought the disc. Aren't you proud of Thank me? Thank you for supporting the to movement. To do this Thank segment, yes. I, I'm going to do one of those fantasy social media posts, but it's just going to have <laughs> one, one disc. disc. <laughs> yeah. I'll put that up. I'll, I'll do the full shot of all the Penny Baker films if you want me to. I can do that at home. But Hedge just says in there, like, she was trying to get Bill Clinton on election night. Like the whole payoff was going to be yep. this guy, this governor of Arkansas, who's so young, realizing, oh, my God, I just became president, like capturing his face in that moment. And it failed. But as often happens in journalism, when you get the right around, you get amazing stuff. It's not a full right around, though, right? Like it's a right around for Bill Clinton, but it's a deep portrait of James Carville. Yes. And in some ways, George Stephanopoulos, in some ways not. I'm curious how you feel about Stephanopoulos looking at this again, you know, and what kind of what his life has been publicly for the last 30 years. But, um, I mean, I, is there, is there a better character in American politics in the last 30 years than James Carville? I don't think so. I mean, he looks, he feels like he was invented for a movie. He gives three speeches in this movie that are just jaw dropping. I'm like, did he, who wrote, did, did David Mamet write these? Like, what, what is this? <laughs> Let's hear a little bit of the famous one. This is James Carville, the night before the 92 election. There's a simple doctrine, outside of a, a person's love, the most sacred thing that they can give is their labor. And somehow or another along the way, we tend to forget that. And labor is a very precious thing that you have. And any time that you can combine labor with love, you've made a, a merger. And I think we're going to win tomorrow, and I think that the governor is going to fulfill his promise and change America. And I think many of you are going to go on and help him. I'm a political professional. That's what I do for a living. I'm proud of it. We changed the way campaigns are run. Amazing stuff. What's amazing to me about that moment, and it goes on even further, I encourage people to watch this movie if they haven't, is that it is a genuinely moving speech that he gives. I also, I think, I think, I think James Carville is evil. And so 
Uh oh. Like I think this took a turn. Well, I I think that his entire work is in theory premised upon changing the world by getting politicians into office. But I think ultimately what he does is he manipulates the feelings of people. That is what his work is. Um, he doesn't inform, he directs. And I'm very suspicious of people who work in those industries. And the, I wouldn't say that this movie valorizes him. I think it shines a very bright and welcoming light on him. But I think that you are meant to be a little bit suspicious of the way that this world works. And so there's that interesting moment where he says, I am a political professional. That's what I do for a living. This is for money. This is what he does. It's emotional and it's meaningful to him, but he does this for money and a lot of money. And obviously at this moment in his career, it is the culmination of something that he has been working towards. And he's kind of a late bloomer and he talks about that in the speech. But the movie is, like all Penny Baker movies, not as admiring of its subject as you might think based on their identity in the world. You know, he famously captured Norman Mailer uh, debating four women in a documentary called Town Bloody Hall. He captured a rehearsal of Company, the Stephen Sondheim um, musical. And these are like really piercing emotional portraits of people who are flawed um, it, while doing their work. Like that's what he's really good at. You know, Norman Miller's work was really like being a blowhard in public and in addition to writing. And James Carville's work is like riling people's feelings and getting them to do things for him. And so I look at this movie as like a mega triumph of documentary. I would have loved to have been a part of something like this. But I, I and, and you know, I'm, I'm glad Bill Clinton got elected and there was not a second term for George H.W. Bush or whatever, but the, there's something insidious going on at the root of the movie to me. Um, George Stephanopoulos, you know, cajoling someone from a rival campaign to not publish a story about his candidate and like insinuating that he shouldn't do things because it will look bad for him and then he won't be able to work in democratic politics again. Yep. You know, it's the stuff that is right out of advise and consent. You know, it's right out of those Gore Vidal novels. It's, it's, it, that is how, poli it shows you that this is how politics works. It is what you think it is. So it's like an, a, a precious text that we see how the world really works. But I, I come away, even though I'm ostensibly a Democrat, I come away feeling a little like icky watching it of, of like three and four and five times. You know what I mean? As opposed to like stirred by their success. I agree. And I think part of what it is is you're taking something that we all know is out there and you're putting it on camera. You know, this is this is probably the best portrait of this since the Joe McGinnis book Selling of the President, which is back mm -hmm. in the 70s. Right. Which goes very deep on that sort of idea of dressing up things and manipulating the public. This is what campaigns are. Yeah. This is what the campaigns are of even the people you root for to win. You and never, you rarely see them on camera in depth too. Yeah. You know, like you, this feels, it feels like a chapter from what it takes, but doesn't feel like the book, you know, like it's not quite, it, it's a piece of the puzzle. There are significant people even who are featured, like Mitch Cantor is featured in this film. You see him talking a Mickey few times. Mickey Cantor. Excuse me, Mickey Cantor. With the big suspenders. Yes. On. Yeah. So Mickey Cantor is like a really important person in 20, 20th century politics. I mean, he is basically the author of a free trade movement that ultimately defined Clinton's administration. Globalization as a, as a, strat, as a political strategy, which is now something we look back on about the Clinton camp, uh, administration. We're like, God, that wasn't good. <laughs> you know, like this, this emergence of free trade was pretty tricky. And in the movie, he's the guy in the suspenders who's helping them win. 
it's not telling us the story of what it is that he did or did not do. Mm-hmm. It's just this was a team. And now most of the people that are featured in that movie went on a long and hallowed careers in the world of politics and had great success. I'm sure some of them are good people and some of them are not good people. But the movie very slyly doesn't lift them too high or take them too low. Oh, yeah. And why do you need to, right? Because you've got this amazing portrait of them backstage making those phone calls, as you say, with Stephanopoulos, one of the best scenes in the entire movie. Crazy to catch that. And also the scene of, you know, Stephanopoulos telling Bill Clinton, essentially, that he's he's winning and he's going to become the next president of the United States. I mean, that stuff is just unbelievable. It's crazy. And what, what did you think of Stephan- Stephanopoulos watching it this time? I think the movie may be a reflection of his place in the campaign. You know, this campaign made rock stars out of lots of people mm-hmm. probably took, you know, that there had been that that figure in American politics certainly had existed before. This probably took them to another level considering George Stephanopoulos is on morning television now and has been for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he comes off as an interesting figure. There was a moment in this campaign where he like called into a Larry King CNN interview with HW to challenge him on the air, which is just feels like a kind of. George Stephanopoulos over your skis kind of moment. It it felt like a very contemporary political move to me. It felt kind of more like a Trump campaign kind of a move. Sure, you know? a tweet. Yeah, yeah. In a way. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he he seems to me to be the kind of youngish junior partner to Carvel. Yes. Whereas, trying, trying to make his name, learning at the foot of the master. I will say one other thing about Spin that I think is so interesting. Because when you watch this movie, the events of which take place in 1992, Spin is happening inside the Clinton war room. Mm-hmm. And there's another great scene where James Carville is talking to uh, a reporter, clearly, and saying, you know, why, why you blame us on everything and you're not asking them those same questions. you asking <laughs> them those same questions? Like, which we could just insert as every piece of media complaining ever. What, they get away with everything. We, get, we say one thing. Um, what's interesting to me about that is the spin is happening within the war room only. Like, if this were today... As soon as anything happens with the Biden-Trump campaigns, well, it's on Twitter, right? All of their allies are doing their thing on Twitter. They're doing their things on the partisan cable news channels. The media is the the spin room. The media is the war room now in a way that's very, very different from 1992, where essentially they were dealing with the very old idea of a mainstream press. I feel like so much of what we've talked about today is about the way the things used to be and why they can't be that way anymore, you know? The way that Pitchfork and Peter King and James Carville's effectiveness as a political operator, it just doesn't work in the same way that it did, that it has to be kind of redefined. This movie do- is a perfect time capsule of someone working at the height of his powers in that time. You know, somebody who really understood the narrativization yes. of a campaign and that, you know, the movie very smartly, you know, Stephanopoulos before Carville's big speech identifies what these key talking points were. For the speech, you know, it's the economy, stupid things like that. And then the film kind of effectively closes on a shot of the whiteboard where those mantras are written. And it's because Carville is a master at boiling it down. My favorite scene in the, in the film is the one where they effectively write a campaign ad in real time. And you can watch Carville sloganeering in five minutes, three minutes. He comes up with what could be a death blow to George H.W. Bush's campaign just by figuring out the right four words in a certain order. You know, it is, as writers and editors, this is a skill, you know? Like, he really did have an, an innate skill to puncture, pierce, and wound his opponents. And obviously, people like Clinton benefited greatly from it. I mean, Carville's still doing it. 
He's still at it. He's still advocating every day for Joe Biden. It's amazing. He's answering every phone call, seemingly, from the media. He's on cable news all the time. They were very good sloganeers. I think that's also think they're very fast for the period. That war room was very nimble, at least mm. in 1992 terms. They had a very, very flawed candidate. Movie starts in New Hampshire with him not only dealing with infidelities or rumors or accusations of infidelities, but also draft dodging. Yes. I mean, this 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 was they were trying to sell a very, very flawed person to the American public who we'd find out in later years was even more flawed than than we understood at the time. I, I had this thought when I was watching the movie and was talking to my, my wife and I revisited it together. And I think if you lived Jerry Brown's life a hundred times, <laughs> 96 of them, he would have been the president of the United States. And it's fascinating to watch him just have no chance against Paul Songus and Bill Clinton and Ross Perot. Because like between the resume and like being a fiery leader of a different kind and representing a, a movement, being from a big state, he kind of had the mold. Or maybe if he lived in a different era, like across 10 different generations of Americans, someone like him as forceful and clear minded and the way he challenges Clinton during one of those debates in the film is like exactly what people want to see happen to politicians every day. It's why they tune into debates. They want to see someone get held accountable for the, the question that they refused to answer. Yeah. And he got his clock cleaned by Bill Clinton, in part because Bill Clinton's campaign was so deft and so smart and so effective. Oh, yeah. And he could just, I mean, any question, I'm just going to turn <laughs> it on its head and put it right back That's on That's a here. good Clinton. That's better than your Carville, I got to say. Also, James Carville dating Mary Madeline. Can we just talk about how mind-blowing that would be in 2024? The people running the campaigns i mean imagine if the imagine if the person running the biden campaign was dating the person running the trump campaign yeah it was the mr and mrs smith of 1992 for sure i mean the movie also very artfully portrays that you know we get time with mary madeline we see also what like a whip smart operator she is too she's really like she's basically like a talk show star in front of us standing outside of convention halls um but the way that they track them and then one moment when they come together yes and then they they separate and they're Cargill walking disappears. out after a debate i yes. believe and they yes. have that kind of moment where they're talking to each other and i think pennybacker said he was holding the cam the camera really low so you get that kind of almost you know cinematic feature film kind it's of tracking beautiful. shot i mean it's really artful and re something that's really hard to accomplish in a story like this the way that the movie is cut is very smart because at times it explains what's happening and at other times it just insinuates the circumstances so that that I mean the the facts of Madeline and Carvel together still blow my mind. The idea of them talking to each other alone privately over breakfast. But on the other hand, they're two genius political animals, right? And so they're probably made for each other. The other thing that blew me away about this movie is it does not have conventional narration or people talking to the camera explaining to you what's going on. It's all sights and sounds and overheard things. And the movie I was reminded of the most was Nashville, Robert mm -hmm. Altman's Nashville just because of the way that the camera would have somebody on stage giving a speech and it would go over here. You know, there's that great Al Gore speech. I don't know if I'm going to attempt a third impression here, but he would give on the stump over and over. Brian, yeah. In a, uh, we, this we, speech we, is in a lockbox, Brian. <laughs> Where he would be like, you know, inflation is up and, <laughs> and revenues are down. This is up and this is down. And instead of showing us that, which is actually a very, it's like as interesting as Al Gore has ever been, <laughs> the camera goes to the side and it's a woman translating it into sign language sure and she's trying to keep up with Al Gore it's an amazing shot yeah and I, it, it really does have that alt mini way of kind of showing you things and letting you hear things well that's it's a it's a very good point and you're right about it Pennybaker's style historically is 
pure verite. It's capturing the events as they're transpiring. It's Jimi Hendrix lighting his guitar on fire after performing uh, at Monterey Pop. And he was the king of that. This movie demands a certain kind of archival finesse where you're showing news clips, you're showing... There's a few seams where you have to just show newspaper front pages and a few television things. It's not a pure Penny Baker movie in that way, but that means that the the verite stuff actually has to be like exceptional and it is like it really is they they have gold on their hands when they show that stuff it's really incredible and just really stitched together artfully and it turns out they only get onto this movie at the democratic convention in the summer in new york city so mm-hmm. they basically they go back and find this footage that someone else has shot stitch it together to make it look like they were in new hampshire and then they're they're coming in in, in new york city when there's a great shot with uh carvel and stephanopoulos in blue blazers walking into the hotel like here come the political <laughs> consultants it's really a, a fascinating thing i did think a couple of times last night while watching it that you know m- almost all the events that transpire with the exception of the new hampshire primary like are still ahead of us in this race yes even though this feels all but settled in a way that 1992 did not feel all but settled and the kind of fascinating mania of perot dropping out in this race and then re- reinserting himself back into the race like could you imagine if something like that had happened now? It, it would have. It would be so mind blowing. But um, we have we do have a we have a long nine months in front of us. We have a truly long nine months in front of us. I watched a little bit, by the way, the C-SPAN 1993 premiere or the the premiere in Washington D.C. was on C-SPAN. Mm. It's on YouTube. Can I read you the names of other films on the marquee of the Washington D.C. art house? Please do. Where the War Room was playing. Let's go back in time, Sean. Farewell, my concubine. Absolutely. Like water for chocolate. Yes, two international masterpieces. Hamon, Hamon. Three international masterpieces. And Ruby in Paradise. Wow. That is as 1993 as it gets, baby. That's a real art house cinema. That's got to be, that's a very tasteful space for showing films. It's no longer open. Eh, Not surprised. Not a surprise. Tale of movies. That's a sad one. Before we go, can we talk about this year's Oscar doc nominees? Yes. Oscars coming up on March 10th is uh, 20 Days in Mariupol. The best film I saw last year, full stop, in the list. Is it going to win? I I believe it will win um, for a variety of reasons. It is absolutely worth seeing. Amanda and I actually on the big picture talked about it a little bit this week. It is very hard to watch. I hope I'm not um, pushing people away from watching it, but there are some sequences there's some violent sequences early in the film as we see the early days of the um, siege on Mariupol in, in, in Ukraine that are very upsetting. And Extremely you, you so. need to be prepared for that. You to need watch to this be movie. prepared to see human beings and specifically children die on camera. Yes. Um, and But that in its way is part of what is, makes the film so remarkable and so effective and so devastating is that it is capturing not just war-like circumstances, war circumstances, the devastation of people's lives and done so in a very similar kind of verite way where his camera is basically moving through the city and observing how people's lives are being torn apart and how the identity of a, of a country and a na- or of a city and a nation is basically being destroyed in real time. It's a, a major achievement, um, but tough to watch. The, the, have you have you seen the other doc nominees? I haven't. That's the only one. So I saw it in film form. I saw it in in a, oh in a movie theater in a theater when oh, it I came out not. last summer, and or it was it was screening I guess last summer. In fact, I went to see Barbie and it was sold out. And I thought, what am I going to do now? It was in New York City. Are so you I went serious? To say twenty day, I went to say twenty days in Mariupol based that's on a New York Times review, and I walked out of there like holy god, that's <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, from the slate, 
it's a good slate, but it is a slate that I think is representative of a documentary branch that is trying to make a statement about what kinds of work it wants to recognize. It's pretty well known that the Oscars is significantly more international. The Academy is significantly more international than it was 10 years ago. Almost all of these films are international productions. The Eternal Memory, a film about a journalist, actually, this is very much worth watching, um, who is engaging, um, who's in the latter stages of his life and is uh, suffering from, I can't recall if it's early onset Alzheimer's or defined as dementia, but the movie uses archival footage of his life and career and his life with his partner to talk about how to remember his life. Um, very effective and sad movie. Four Daughters is also like an interesting experiment in documentary format where um, four women uh, are essentially cast and their lives are kind of retold or replayed. Um, these, these four women in Tunisia and they've lived this kind of traumatic life. And it's not totally successful experiment for me, but an interesting movie. To Kill a Tiger is a movie I haven't seen. It just got acquired by Netflix about a week ago and um, is a very small production, um, an Indian production about uh, essentially the campaign for a young woman who was brutally murdered um, to seek justice for her and then 20 Days in Mariupol. And this is not still a Michael J. Fox story. This is not American Symphony, a movie about John Batiste and his wife who is um, battling cancer. It's not uh, these kind of celebrity-driven, fame-focused, streamer-funded movies. Like, there's a real push right now, I think, within that branch to stand apart from the machinations of Hollywood. And it's been explained to me in the past that, you know, the doc branch, unlike virtually every other branch in the Oscars, is more really located in New York. You know, Hollywood and LA is over here and documentary is more of an East Coast proposition. Now, obviously, there are plenty of documentarians who work in the West Coast, Texas, the Midwest, all over the place. But the hive mind for that branch is different and frankly, is more like the media. And because of that, I think you see a work like 20 Days of Mariupol being awarded in this category. And, and there's just a long history of this. The films that are more journalistic, you know, give or take uh, my octopus teacher are the films that get recognized films like American factory films like Navalny, you know, Navalny, which won uh, uh, last year, of course, is like incredibly oh. resonant. And, you know, obviously Navalny just died and um, in prison in Russia, or maybe I was he in Poland. I can't recall where he was located at the time, but, um, you know, those are the kinds of films that that branch looks for. And they're often works about urgent issues in the world. 20 Days of Mariupol, though, I think even even by that standard is uh, stands apart. Absolutely. It's a fantastic film. And I, and I don't know that I would want to see it again. Yeah. Um, or at least all of it again. But I'll never forget seeing it. I mean, the, even the sights beyond what we're talking about, the sights of the Russian tanks with a big Z painted on the side uh, coming into the city. It is truly, truly an amazing and horrifying experience. All right, Sean. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. I had one vision. Always ask your boss for stuff on the air. Find that's the best <laughs> sure, way to do yeah. it. We're getting later in the campaign. It's a couple months, early fall. We're worried about Michigan, particularly those Michigan voters who are going to turn out for Biden or not. I'm hearing so much about this in the New York Times. It's 35th anniversary of Roger and me this year. Yeah. You know, maybe in the fall we talk a little bit more, do one of these again. And, I would uh, love that. Uh, that movie, I is kind of in league with like clerks pulp fiction dazed and confused in a way that kind of changed the way that i think about movies and what i want from movies so i would love to do that 100 percent. all right sean big picture rewatchables everything else thank you once again for coming on the press box thanks brian that's the press box i'm brian curtis fraction magic by brian waters we are just about ready to release the march schedule of press box guest hosts i'm just 
fiddling with a few things. All new people, including a theme show that you will really, really be interested in. That should come out in the next few days. And then on Monday, Shoemaker and I return with more lukewarm takes about the movie. Have a great week. 